Good morning. Four Corners and any visitors we may have with us today. I know family and friends in town. And uh, happy Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as we like to call it. The day that our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as the fulfillment of the ages. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that went before him in the Old Testament. We are focused on that a lot at Christmas and Easter. As we think about the fact that the coming of Jesus did not come out of a vacuum. He didn't just appear uh, as a nice guy in first century Palestine. But he is the promised Christ. And so let me just encourage you if you're wondering about Christianity, you just don't know much about the Christian faith, go and, and read about the prophecies of this Christ from the Old Testament. Read of how Christ fulfilled these prophecies, these ancient promises. He is, as he was called in the Gospels, the coming one, the one who is to come into the world. I hope that you have come this morning with immense joy in your heart as Daniel prayed earlier, uh, with, your, with our, uh, our clothes, our, our perhaps nicer clothes on, but hopefully it is deeper than that. Hopefully there is immense joy in our hearts, recognizing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, we consider the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That for those who are believers in Jesus, those who are Christians, that we have been born again within our hearts, within our souls. We've been born anew, given new hearts in which we are filled with hope on account of the resurrection. So what happens when a person becomes a Christian is uh, they begin to have this great hope in Christ. As, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, they turned from idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. There's a great hope that explodes in the heart of a believer and it is based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus died paying the penalty for our sins, and he rose again on the third day, defeating death and securing our eternal life. The, the resurrection assures us that we will live. What great hope we have in the hour of our death as believers. You see, the world knows nothing of that. The world tries to forget death or redefine death or numb itself so that it doesn't have to think about death. But that's not the way of the Christian. We stare death in the face. And because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we know that we too will live. Though we die, we shall live. This is the great hope of the believer. It is certain. So, all of that to say, we have much to celebrate Today, as we gather here this morning. And let me just encourage you this morning not to let yourself be robbed of that joy. And I think this needs to be said as we're here this morning on Easter Sunday, this great day of celebration. 
Undoubtedly, there are things in our minds, things looming out there in the future, things that we carried into this building with us this morning that are heavy, that are saddening, that are troubling, stressful. My encouragement to all of us here this morning who are believers is to not allow yourself to be robbed of this great joy that we have today as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To, To table those things, or better yet, to entrust all those cares into the sovereign, omnipotent, loving hands of our Heavenly Father. To just leave them there. To leave them in God's hands and worship and celebrate for what he has done in Christ. As I said on Friday at our Good Friday service, we never consider the death or resurrection of Jesus apart from the other. The crucifixion always anticipates the joy of the resurrection. So we never come with just this isolated somberness or grief on Good Friday. It's always leaning towards the resurrection. It's always pushing towards the raised Christ. And the resurrection always looks back to the cost of the cross. We never celebrate the resurrection on Easter without feeling the weight of Golgotha, of Calvary, of Jesus as the Lamb of God who on the cross took our sins so that they could be removed from our account before a holy God. So we recognize that it really is a package deal as we think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared, and Paul goes on to identify who he appeared to, but he appeared to many. So you see how all these things are a package deal. The, the death of Christ, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and the appearance to many. The Christian faith is a historical faith. It's not a mystical faith. It's not one of those sort of floating, isolated, existential, in our own heads, imaginative, as long as we feel it, we're good kind of things. Christianity is rooted, it's concrete, it's anchored in history. And that's why for thousands of years now, Christians have looked at the historical evidences for the coming of Christ, for his death and his resurrection, his miracles and all the things that he did, that there's an evidentiary basis. Our faith is not based on this rational demonstration of evidences. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but these evidences are present. The Christian faith is a historical faith, not something we just make up to get through life, to feel better about the weight of this fallen world. Our passage for today is John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. So if you'll go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. As a church, we've been going through Exodus. uh, But today we will step away from that and look at the Gospel of John. This is where the resurrected Jesus appears to Thomas. 
a somewhat well-known story, and it might be one that you have encountered before. Jesus appears to Thomas along with the other disciples. So there they are. Jesus comes, and we're going to look at what has traditionally been called the Doubting Thomas passage. Many have pointed out that it's a little unfair to just label Thomas as Doubting Thomas. It's likely that any of the disciples, had they been in Thomas's shoes, would have done the same thing, right? So we're not meant to just uh, throw darts at Thomas. And by the way, that we would have done the same thing. I think it's important to remember as we think about this disciple. So traditionally called Doubting Thomas, but I think we could be a little more charitable with our brother Thomas as we think about this story. So the title for this morning is Believe the Word of Life. That's the message of Easter. It is to believe the word of life. If you're not a Christian, it is to begin believing. To begin believing today. To turn away from unbelief. You know, unbelief is characterized in Scripture as disobedience. To not believe the truth about God, the revelation of God. To not honor him out of that belief and give him thanks is to disobey him. It is to sin against him. It is to rebel against the sovereign king of the universe. So the message of scripture and the message of Easter is to believe the word of life. And as I said before, the message of Easter, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the word of life. It is the message of life that Christ rose And in him we likewise have life. We have life now by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And we will live forever with God in new bodies. Believe the word of life. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. John chapter 20 verses 24 to 31. This is the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's your heart. I won't believe it. Mom and dad believe it. Brother and sister believe it. I'm not going to believe it. I'm just here because Easter. Verse 26. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's the message today. In a nutshell, do not disbelieve, but believe. If you're an unbeliever, 
Do not continue disbelieving, but turn to Christ now and believe. If you're a Christian, continue in that faith. Grow and nurture that belief. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, probably with his face in the ground. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A promise of blessedness to all of us here. because We haven't seen him, but a promise of blessing to all who would believe, though having not seen. Verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, listen to this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help. You know, nothing of consequence happens in our hearts apart from God's grace, apart from the work of his spirit. We're not just little dangling neutral wills that just choose as we go through life. But God, the Holy Spirit, has to sovereignly act on our hearts for us to, to do anything, to, to think anything, to will anything. So we, we're going to pray right now that the Lord would sovereignly and graciously do work in our hearts. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I'm going to pray that God would save you today. That God would graciously, miraculously save you. Just like he did at the beginning of creation when he said, let there be light. That God would say in your heart, let there be light. And that the brightness of his glory through faith in Christ would begin to shine in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, God, that you have created us. We move around, we taste our food, we wake up in the morning, we hug our spouse, we love on our children. We do all these things often without any regard for the fact that every breath is from you. Our lives are a gift. And Father, we praise you for life. We thank you, Lord, that Beyond that, that you have given us the word of life and that through Christ you give us eternal life in which death is not the conqueror of our souls, of our bodies even, but we have this great certain hope. Lord, we praise you for the truth of Easter. We praise you for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, we thank you for how you give faith in this into the hearts of your people by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray right now in the name of Christ for his sake, just as you say through Paul in Romans 1.5, for the sake of his name, I pray for the obedience of faith in the hearts of the people who are here this morning. Father, would you graciously and powerfully save unbelievers who are with us this morning. Show them the emptiness, the lostness, the meaninglessness of a life lived apart from you. And show them, Father, the glory and the wonder and the joy of living in your Son and for his glory. God, we pray 
that you would be merciful to us today. For all of us, Lord, help us understand your word and to respond to it in obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this resurrection appearance, and that's what we're getting here, we could have gone to a number of resurrection appearances uh, in the Gospels, but this is one of them. And as we look at this particular resurrection appearance, this encounter with Thomas, I want us to focus on two things. A very simple outline. If you're a note taker, feel free. If not, don't worry about it. It's pretty simple. Two things that we're going to look at this morning as we consider this resurrection appearance. So here they are. First, the care for Thomas, and second, the call for today. As we look at this passage, the resurrected Lord appearing to his disciples, we see the care for Thomas and the call for today. So let's look first at the care for Thomas. Look with me at verses 24 to 28. We're going to read those verses again. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace Be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You see the intimacy there, the relationship there between Thomas and Christ. At this point, Jesus has already appeared to his disciples as a group. As we read, as we read in the passage just before ours, the beginning of that passage, verse 19, on the evening of that day, that is the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They have been, as it were, hiding out. Their master has just been killed. Their master has just been killed as a criminal, handed over to the Romans. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, recognized that Jesus was innocent. And he could even see astutely, probably because he had seen it in his own heart in other circumstances, he could tell that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus up because of envy. They were simply jealous of Jesus. They had spent all these years studying, all these years gathering their credentials, tucking away their prestige. And then here comes Jesus, this no-name guy from Nazareth. And he's the one gathering all these crowds. He's the one being so glorified and so praised. And the religious leaders hated him. Because they envied him. They were jealous of him. So they they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate hands him over essentially after uh, stating that he's innocent. He doesn't appear to be guilty of anything. He hands him over to be crucified. And the disciples, we know when they came to arrest Jesus, they all fled. And we know Peter denied Christ there as he's outside of where Jesus is being tried. Warming his hands by the fire. He denies 
Christ three times. Now they're in hiding, hiding out together. And Jesus has come, appeared to them, and said, Peace be with you. They have heard the Lord. And they have seen the Lord, reminding me of the words of 1 John. We, what, what we have seen, what we have heard, what our hands have handled concerning the word of life. They have heard and seen the Lord. But there's a problem. One of the disciples, now 11, so the 12 has turned into the 11. Judas, we know, betrayed Jesus. So there are 11. But one of the 11 was absent. One of the eleven was not there when Jesus had appeared the first time on the day of his resurrection. Thomas is not present with the others. Now we don't know why he's not there. We're not told in the text why Thomas is missing. He could have stepped away for just a little bit He could be running an errand to get some things for the other disciples. He could be the food guy. You know, during those first few weeks of COVID, you know, every family probably had a runner. (laughs) This is the person who would go to Publix and sort of dodge other people and, you know, make sure that you're sort of uh, ducking and weaving and diving through the aisles and so forth. So maybe Thomas is uh, the runner for everybody. He's going to do errands. He's going to get food or he's going to get basic things. So we really don't want to make too much out of his absence because we're not told, we just don't know. But I think his absence is instructive. I think it's instructive for us. It reminds me a little bit of David. He's on the roof and he's overlooking, you know, his glorious kingdom there in Jerusalem, and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. He begins to lust after her. The problem is that David is in the wrong place. David is supposed to be out with his soldiers. He's supposed to be out with his generals. He's supposed to be out to battle in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and instead he's hanging out. He's idle. He's just hanging out on the roof. I think there could be something similar going on here. Thomas is simply not in the right place. At the very least, it reminds us of the importance of being with God's people. For some reason, Thomas is not with his brothers. It's not a few of them. It's it's just Thomas. Everybody else is there, but not Thomas. He's not with the other followers of Jesus. Notice this, he's not in the place where faith flourishes. He's not in the place of stability. For that matter, very literally here, he's not in the place of Christ's presence with his people gathered. As I said, I don't want to make too much of this because the text does not put all of this on Thomas But it does remind us of the importance that we must not think that we can come to church one Sunday a year or two Sundays a year. If we we bear the name of Christ, if we truly believe in this Christ and he's given us a new heart and we are true believers, we recognize the withness that is so important for God's people. 
We cannot live the Christian life as lone rangers. We cannot just live the Christian life with uh, our Christian radio station and our devotional and a few friends at work who love Jesus. That's not how it works. We must belong to God's people. We must be with God's people. So Thomas does not see the resurrected Christ. But he does receive the word. He does receive the word of the other disciples. He receives their testimony. They tell him, Thomas, we have seen Christ. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas's response here is a little surprising to us. I mean, I think when you're first reading of this, it strikes you, it is surprising. He doesn't just say, man, I don't know, guys. This all sounds pretty far-fetched. That's not what we get. I mean, we would expect that. That would be unsurprising. But that's not what we hear here from Thomas. We don't get, are, are you sure it was him? Are you really sure? What we read instead is a hard and obstinate skepticism. And as I said before, I think we probably would have seen this with any of the disciples and any of us. So we're not meant to just throw our spear at Thomas. But we are, I think, meant to take note of the fact that this is, this is a hard and obstinate skepticism. Listen to verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Let me just say this to you. What are you waiting on? Do you know, you know, on the day of judgment, when you stand before Christ, you won't be able to say, Jesus, you never came floating out of heaven before my eyes with a spotlight and an entourage of angels to show me you were Christ. Why didn't you do that? If only you would have done that, I would have believed. That's not going to fly. That's not going to work on the day of judgment. What we see here with Thomas on verse 25 fits with what we've seen from Thomas before. A couple of other instances of Thomas. Chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus is going to go. Now, keep in mind the authorities are looking for Jesus. That It's just uh, in a moment we're going to see a situation where they, they're ready to kill him definitively and as you're reading through the Gospel of John. But in chapter 11, verse 16, Lazarus has died and Jesus is going to go raise him and he says, let's go. And Thomas, it says there, Thomas called the twin, and Aramaic Thomas means twin. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, if you're just reading very quickly, you may think that Thomas is just there you know, expressing this great uh, desire to be a follower of Jesus. And I think some devotion is packed into that. He does go. But there's also some pessimism, some sarcasm that I think we're meant to detect as Thomas says that. Uh, Let us also go that we may die with him. We're just going to go and die with Jesus. He's been predicting his death. John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's a good question. It gives Jesus a great opportunity to give an answer. But we, we can sense there uh, the, the little seeds of skepticism even in Thomas's heart. And it, it ties in closely with what we read here. So what does Jesus do? 
eight days later or a week later, since they were including the first day, according to Jewish reckoning, that first day would have been day one. And so it was a week later. It was the following Lord's Day or Sunday. That's why we gather uh, on Sunday and not Saturday. The Jews, they gathered on the Sabbath on Saturday. We gather on Sunday because that was the day Christ was raised from the dead. That is the Lord's Day. And so a week later, Jesus appears again to the whole group. And it's the same setup. Jesus miraculously comes into a locked room. He doesn't pick the lock. He doesn't find the key. He doesn't, as the paralytic and his uh, friends there, come through the roof. He just appears in this locked room. He stands among them and he says, peace be with you. In other words, Jesus is recreating the initial event simply for the sake of Thomas. Now think about that for a moment. Think think about the gravity of that. This is just one. This is just one of the 11. Christ recreates the entire appearance that had happened a week earlier. He recreates the entire thing. He redoes, he repeats the thing, the appearance, for the sake of this one man, Thomas. And even though Jesus was not with them, he heard Thomas. So here we have Jesus coming into the room with locked doors. We see Jesus here recognizing what Thomas had said to the other disciples. No one's gone and told Jesus and informed Jesus. He is the risen Lord. He can move through walls. He passed through the heavens. And he hears all. You know, he hears everything that we say this morning, and he knows every thought in your heart. Jesus knows all. And then, with laser-like focus, he turns his attention entirely to Thomas. We get this in verse 27. Put your finger here. Thomas, put your finger here. Just as you said, that's what you need That's what you would like? Go ahead. Put your finger here, Thomas, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. After Jesus' death, he had been pierced through the side. His hands, or better yet, his wrists here would have had the prints from the nails, large nails that would have gone into Jesus' flesh passed between his bones and gone into the cross. He was fastened to the cross. He was nailed to the tree. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Jesus condescends to Thomas's wishes and he calls Thomas to believe. Do not doubt. Do not be unbelieving. Be a believer. Trust in me, Thomas, the resurrected Lord and Redeemer. That's the message that's going out to every single face, 
every single heart this morning is to not be an unbeliever any longer. To not turn away from God in unbelief, but to turn to God in faith, to trust Jesus with your whole life, to trust him with your soul, to be believing. And here, amazingly, we see the heart and the way of our Savior. We see the way of our good shepherd. We see Christ's gentleness. Do you see the gentleness of the Lord, his patience, and his shepherding care for the soul of Thomas? He doesn't pull Thomas over in the corner and get the finger out and start lecturing Thomas. That's not what happens here. We see the gentleness the patience of our Lord. One of the reasons that I went to this passage is because it made me think of what we've seen in Exodus. We saw this disposition of the Lord as he was relating to Moses. Remember at the burning bush? I mean, who had gotten the privilege of what Moses received there at the bush? God reveals himself to him, gives him his name. He, he's speaking to Moses and he's calling Moses to go and do a work. He's calling Moses to go to Egypt and bring out the Israelites. And all Moses could do is argue with God. He's arguing with Yahweh, the I am. And we see there the patience, and the care of the Lord. We've seen it with the Israelites. There they are. Man, God's brought them out of slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea and crushed their enemies with the water. He gives them drink and food. And what do they do? They grumble. They blaspheme. They attack Moses. The Lord in gentleness and patience with shepherding care. He guides his people. He leads his people. He graciously cares for them in their sin. In their weakness. And let me say this to us this morning as Christians, this is how the Lord is with us. He is so gracious with us. He does not give us what we deserve. And I don't just mean hell for our sins. I don't just mean that. I mean even in the Christian life. He doesn't give us the full weight of the discipline that we deserve. How often we deserve a heavy hand from the Lord. And he is gentle and soft and caring, and loving, and patient, and long-suffering to the end with us. We praise him for that. And it spurs us on to be holier before his face. It spurs us on to be grateful for his loving kindness. It spurs us on to smash idols and to turn away from immorality of every kind because we see the loving kindness of our God. So what is the result or even purpose of this focused loving care for Thomas? What is, what's the outcome as, as Jesus here lovingly relates to Thomas? He condescends to Thomas. What is the result? Well, we read here, it is this glorious confession that we get in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my, <coughs> and my God. Listen to this. Jesus' care 
for us is not some empty sentimental care for its own sake. So let let me nuance what I just said just a little bit. It's not just so that we can just sentimentally revel in his care. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That's so nice of you. That's not it. This loving kindness, this gentleness, this patience, this shepherding care of us, this nurturing of us is for his glory. It is for the glory of his name. It is for our recognition and belief that he is the risen Lord, worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all of our time and energy and thoughts and affections. It is not some vain sentimentalism. It is for the glory of Christ and our good believing and confessing him. It is for our trust and confidence that he is God. This is probably the clearest affirmation that we have in Scripture that Jesus is God. Here, Thomas says, my Lord. He doesn't say just Lord. We can understand that. Now, of course, in in the context, I think that would be significant in terms of his deity. Uh, But that could be understood to be sir, master, something of that sort. Doesn't say king, that could be just sort of only he is the promised Messiah in some uh, David way. No, Thomas says, my God, my God, Jesus is God. Do you worship Jesus as God? One of the things I love about this passage is it brings together these two great truths. And this is always hard as we're teaching our children that Jesus is truly man and truly God. He is 100% man, 100% God, fully God and fully man. And we see it so beautifully in this passage where we see his his hands and his side, that, that Jesus comes into the room. He's able to be touched, and yet we see as the resurrected Lord, he's able to pass through walls. He has come in the flesh And he is God, human and divine. So we see here first the care for Thomas. Secondly, we come to the call for today, where the rubber meets the road for us. Look at verses 29 to 31. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did, now this goes on to another passage, and we'll talk in a moment about the connection. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas's faith has been preserved. We see that here. We don't really know the condition of Thomas's heart before this event. And it's murky as we think about what's in the hearts of the disciples. We know that they are, they're coming to understand more and more about Christ. The farewell discourse where Jesus speaks to the disciples before he goes to Gethsemane implies that they are true believers, that they, they do believe and they do love Jesus. 
though their understanding is weak and the spirit has not come. The spirit of the, the glorified Christ has not been poured out on them and into them. And so we see this radical difference uh, before that with Peter and then we see him preaching at Pentecost. So we don't really know all of what's going on in Thomas's heart, but we know now. Thomas confesses that Jesus is God himself. And he does this in a Jewish context. Now for us, the the weight of that is is kind of lost. But if you understand the the monotheism of the Jewish people, that all around them there's worship of, of all sorts of beings. There's worship of many, many, many gods. And the Jews were monotheistic. One God. And by the time By this point, that was firm in Israel. Now, we know the history of Israel. They they went after idols. But after the Israelites are brought back, we see that that the monotheism of the Israelites, the, the staunchness of that faith in one God plays out strongly in the post exilic period. Thomas confesses this of Jesus in a Jewish context, and Jesus gives him no rebuke because it's true. He is God. Jesus has protected and preserved Thomas's faith. And this is what our Lord does for us. As we go through this life as believers, there are many times where we falter. You think of Pilgrim's Progress. There are many times where we fall asleep. There are many times where we get distracted. There are many times where uh, our minds, uh, the tintillating effect of the world happens on our minds. There are many times where we are drawn away. And what does Christ do? As he did with Thomas. He preserves us. He protects us. He draws us back. He pulls us back. He pushes us back. When we get to heaven, we will hear from Christ all the ways that his unseen hands We're pushing us and pulling us and guiding us through this life. I think we will literally be able to look out and see all the ways that we could have fallen to our destruction, fallen to our demise in unbelief, just like Judas, but Christ. And we will praise him forever because of his loving protective care. This is what he did for Peter. We read this in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32. How would you like to hear this from Jesus? Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Whoa! Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to have him. I think you could understand that in a sense of like Job. Satan has demanded to have you. In other words, Satan wants Jesus to give him Peter so that he can ravage Peter, so that he can strip Peter, destroy Peter. That he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He will be sifted, he will be moved around, he will be jostled, he will be attacked, and he will fail. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In Jesus' greatest hour of trial, Peter doesn't just abandon Jesus. He denies him with a curse. I don't know this man. 
And he curses. And he does it, he denies him three times. In John chapter 17, verse 11, we read of Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father on behalf of his people. And Jesus prays this to the Father, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Oh, if it were not for the prayers of Christ, if it were not for the intercessory work of Christ, if if it were not for the shepherding guidance of Christ, every single one of us would fall away. Every single one of us would love the world. We would sink our teeth into the world. We would go after all the idols that our unbelieving friends and family do. We would deny Christ and trample on his blood. But Christ, he's the only reason that any of us are kept, have been kept, and will be kept until that great day. But Jesus does not leave it there. Though he is gentle and patient, he does leave Thomas with a light rebuke. We do see the Lord's gracious admonishment to to Thomas here, verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this provides the perfect transition for what John will write in verses 30 to 31. And these verses, these two verses, verses 30 and 31 together, are considered the purpose statement for the entire Gospel of John. So listen closely. You've read, if you read through the whole Gospel of John, the, the Gospel of John's been treasured by the church. We treasure all of Scripture. The Gospel of John has, has really risen to the top, I think, for many, as, as this, like Romans, as we think about the epistles. This glorious Gospel putting forth the majesty and love of our Savior. All the gospel, all the chapters up to this point, all the verses, and everything John just wrote that we just read is for this reason. Verses 30 to 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. By the way, uh, the disciples were drinking from a fire hydrant every day. Just watching Jesus scratch his cheek. Wake up in the morning. Say hello to a passerby. They're watching the embodiment of the law at work. They are seeing God in flesh. In everything he does, it would have been amazing. Every bite of food, every word, every breath of Christ would have been amazing. All the little things that he would have done, you could not contain it all. As we read elsewhere, it could not be contained. All the books of the world. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But here you go. But these these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason John wrote his gospel. So since the days of the apostles The call has gone out, and it goes out today. It goes out on this Easter Sunday, 2023. It goes out to your ears. 
to my ears, to all the ears present here this morning, this call goes out. Do you believe? Truly, have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Notice, this is important. Notice something here. Notice that our faith in Jesus is filled with content. Do you see that? It's filled with content. We cannot merely believe in Jesus in some general existential way apart from Scripture. And I think that is the case in our evangelical subculture. As you look out there, this is very personal. That's why you get all these spinoff, all these all these cults and spin-off versions of Christianity because it's just really subjective. It's really just in our own imagination for many. What we see here is that faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus is filled with content. We must believe things about him. It's not just to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not it. That is part of it, and we do, and we see that with Tom, my Lord and my God. We have a personal relationship with Christ. Because we've come to behold him as he is, we haven't invented a Jesus for our own use, for our own convenience. He's the biblical Jesus, and we must believe things about him, that he is the resurrected Lord. He's the promised Jewish Messiah. He is the very Son of God, the eternal Son of the Father, the Word through whom God made the world and who became flesh to die for our sins. This is who He is. We must believe into Him. We must believe in this Christ, not one of our own making. Have you believed in this Christ? Is your faith in Jesus just something that you come to conveniently in times of trouble? Is your faith in Jesus, in Jesus vague, empty of substance? Or is it full, robustly rich with content? All of that to say we must confess him as Thomas does. The connection between these two passages is that Thomas illustrates for us what it means to believe in Jesus. We must fall before him, crying out from the heart, my Lord and my God. That's why John wrote his gospel. So that through his testimony, through his eyewitness account, we would not be unbelieving, but believing. So that we would trust the word of life. And that's the result of believing, that we would have life in his name. And that's why I've entitled the sermon, Believe the Word of Life. Notice how verse 31 ends, that we would have life in his name. Let me plead with you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we, as Christians, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We plead with unbelievers, be reconciled to God. So let me plead with you. If you're not a believer, know this. Eternal life is a reality. Eternal life is not pie in the sky. 
It can be had. You can defeat death. You can conquer death. Eternal life can be had. But it comes only through believing in Jesus. Don't continue to be distracted by this world. One of these days you're going to die. It's all going to be over. And all the things you've collected, they're going to get sold. All the things you've built up in your life, all your prestige, all of your influence, all of your honor and respect will be under the dirt. It's going to happen. Don't chase after more death. Look to this Savior and believe in Him and take hold of life forever, everlasting life. Trusting in Him and what He accomplished on the cross when He paid the penalty for sin. We Christians are not sinless people. We Christians are sinners who've been forgiven by this Christ because he died in our place. The penalty for sin is death and Jesus died in our place. A substitution for us. We trust in what he has accomplished, turning from sin in our hearts, saying in our hearts that that whole complex of worldliness, that whole complex of self-love and self-preservation and love of this world and all of its idols, that whole complex that fills our hearts and fills our minds, we turn away from that in a conscious act of repentance, of turning, and we take hold of Christ as our treasure. That's what it means to believe. So do not be unbelieving anymore. Believe in this Jesus and start gathering with his people. This faith comes by hearing. It comes by hearing the good news about Jesus, whom we do not now see. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As Jesus here tells Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. We believe by hearing the message of the gospel. And then I love these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 to 9. He says this to the believers. Midst of persecution, in the midst of all kinds of suffering, trials of various kinds in this world. He says this to these precious saints. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen Jesus. Peter's writing, Peter's seen him. He's seen him, but he knows they haven't. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And I think we can put a parenthesis there. You love him like I love him. You love him like I love him. Though you do not now see him, you do, we do not now see Jesus. All oh, that day is coming, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. But though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The just shall live by faith. Apart from faith, we will perish in our sins. Apart from faith, 
we will be judged by God in the hour of our death and in the future raised to stand before him to give an account for every sinful deed we've ever committed. That's the end for every person apart from faith in Christ. But as Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. You're not going to see vision of Christ this week, unless the Lord does something I'm not aware of. But God has given you faith. He has filled your heart with faith. And you love him by that faith. And you rejoice by that faith. And you love him like Peter loved him. And you rejoice like Peter rejoiced. Not because you've seen him, but because you are blessed. Blessed more than Peter. Isn't that amazing? Blessed more than Peter because though you have not seen him, you have believed in him unto salvation. So, hear the call of Easter Sunday. Believe the word of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your forgiveness, Lord, for our sins. We thank you for the way you are so gracious with your people, so patient, so kind. Lord, as we are faithful to discipline our own children, as we must do, would we be like that to them, Lord? Patient and gracious and kind and gentle, exhorting them like a father, nurturing them like a mother. Lord, would we be like you in how we shepherd the souls entrusted to our care? Father, we thank you for this gathering today. We pray that you would be merciful in saving. And God, we thank you that you grow us as believers. You strengthen our faith. You do not let us fall away. You will keep us till the end. And Lord, I pray for any Christian here this morning, who has drifted away from you. Maybe they're just here because they feel obligation to be here because it's Easter. Or Lord, maybe just along for the ride. Lord, maybe they've drifted into various kinds of sins and they've just lost sight of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would pull them back, that you would root them in your word. God, that you would rescue them from their distraction, rescue them from their chaff-like life, and bring them back to yourself. Father, you are so merciful. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray that you'd bless this time as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray that it would fill our hearts with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.